So our sermon's text today is found in Philippians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing for selfish ambitions or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in the heavens and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're working through Philippians, these verses, first of the verses for this Advent season. Let's go ahead and pray. God, you are enthroned above all things. And we marvel at your Son who has come down in the flesh. Every Advent season we focus on the treasure that we have in your Son who has adorned himself in flesh. God, let it not grow cold and tired. God, this will be the... The focus of our worship throughout eternity in the future, God, let it be the adoration of our hearts right now that your Son has come in the flesh to ransom his people so that we might be drawn back up to you through him, through faith, to adore you and glorify you forever. Open our hearts to see the glory that you show us about your Son in these words. Amen. 
by the world standards, there is one common theme here. These, by the world standards, the, the greatest of men usually have one thing in common. They consider themselves to be gods. Alexander the Great, 4th fourth, fourth century BC, uh, he's conquering pretty much all of Asia and going through it. And what he would set up then and demanded of so many people is that all of these conquering, these cities that he had conquered is that they would then in turn worship him. The city of Alexandria, not surprisingly named after him, founded after him. Um, there was this cult that kept going on for hundreds of years until the first century BC that continued in their worship of Alexander the Great. This is true in Mesopotamia, it was true of the pharaohs in Egypt, uh, of the Greeks, and certainly it was true with the Romans as well. Domitian, uh, the, the emperor in the late first century, he was an enemy of God and a tyrant against the people of God. As, as John is writing, Revelation, it's, it's under his thumb that he's exiled. And he, organ, he was obsessed with his divinity and even organized worship to him. He demanded to be called Lord and God. And so he would set it up. He would have these festivals in town. And you'd be conscripted to go. And they'd have a little platform. We've talked about this before. They would have a little platform. And you would have to go up. Grab a little incense and throw it in and hail him as God and Lord. But you have to go with your family. So, I mean, what do you do? Either you give him your worship or you give him your blood. What's it going to be? I mean, your family, they have to eat, right? You have a day's food, perhaps, at home. What do you do? Shall your God be human who has taken upon himself divinity? See, right, right there, even the, the foundation of it is flawed. It can't support divinity. So we don't need someone who will redeem us through a militarily or politically or anything like that who is a human that is ascribing godlike qualities to himself. Rather, we need a God who has been eternally divine that will come and put humanity upon himself. And that's what we see in this text. That's what we have in Christ that is so beautiful. So the main passage, the main point of our passage, we're just going to look at one verse, verse 7. Is that Christ has humbled himself by taking on flesh. Christ has humbled himself by taking on flesh. Three points. It's pretty easy. You won't have a three-point sermon, but you have one verse. And there's three clauses in that verse, so... There you go. That's your outline. Number one, he emptied himself. I mean, if you can't figure this out when you're preaching, you probably shouldn't be preaching. It's given right there too. Number one, he emptied himself. 
How did he do that? Well, that's the second part here. Also, verse 7. Taking the form of a servant. So he emptied himself, but taking the form of a servant, and then finally being born in the likeness of men. Now, with this passage in Hebrews chapter 2, in these verses, uh, we, we just covered, again, one verse last week, so he didn't give us enough to kind of step back and look at what's going on. So I think with two verses now in mind, verse 6 and verse 7, you can kind of step back and see a little bit more of what's going on. What you have in these verses is an early hymn, I would say, that is commonly sung. Uh, drawing from, from the text of Isaiah and a lot from Genesis and kind of compiling them together. The early church would do this, to combine, compile them together. And you already have this hymn of Christ. You have several strophes. You see how it kind of goes like this, A, A, B, B, A. So you have who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And then you go back, taking the form of a servant, form of God, form of servant, paralleling himself. Then you have the second strove here as well. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he'd humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then you have the great climax of the hymn. Before the second verse here, the great climax of the hymn is that he was obedient even to the point of death. So it's a hymn. Think about this. This is a hymn. Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison, 60 to 62-ish is when this is being written. Already, already, this didn't take hundreds of years to develop. No, already. You see that Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, is the object of worship, is the object of adoration, is the focal point of worship throughout the early church. And Paul is drawing upon this, this hymn. What you sing matters. I encourage you guys when you're part, leading us in worship. It matters. Some, the, some of these pinnacle texts of the New Testament that we have, Philippians 2, are old hymns. Leading us in worship matters. Thank you. Paul, under the circumstances of being in prison, is encouraging the church to have the same mind of Christ, of that he is humbling himself, and he's drawing from this hymn that the early church is already singing. And it brings you to adore Christ. So let's go, into, let's go into here. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. This first part here. But he emptied himself. Literally, but he himself he poured out. Now recall that Christ is eternally existing with God the Father. We covered that last week. We, we beat that drum a lot last week. Christ is eternally existing with the Father. And it wasn't just a, 
heightened sense of the glories that we have here in the earth. What with the glories of this earth are just shadows of the glory of heaven. But he is actually the fount of all of the glory along with the Spirit and the Father. Go to John 17. This, this high priestly prayer that Christ is preaching, or that Christ is praying in the upper room with his disciples. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory, here it is, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You also see this glory of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, the, the burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he had covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And then he called to another. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, who is this glory? Well, John tells us. We preached on this in John 14. John says that this is the glory of Christ. Think about this. This is the glory of Christ. As he is eternally existing with God the Father before coming into the flesh. This, all of this glory that we are ascribing to God is Christ, is found in Christ. This is John, or John 12. This is the glory of Christ. Isaiah spoke because he saw his glory, Christ's glory, and spoke of him. This is what Christ has emptied himself of. Try to contemplate that. Christ is laying aside his dignity and taking upon himself a more humble rank. Now what we have to make clear here is that Christ is not putting aside part of his divinity. He's keeping all of that. He's putting aside some of his um, dignity, you could say. Thus, he's not giving up some of his divine attributes. Well, he's still being God. The very things that make God, God. Christ still has all of them, but he's put aside some of his dignity. That he might come here. He did not empty himself in any degree of that which makes him God. So think of it this way. Say you're out fishing. And it's a blazing hot day in July and you can't you can't even look up you got the sun coming off the lake you got the sun direct up you can't even look up but then the breeze starts blowing starts to cool off a little bit and the clouds begin to form and then 
when you couldn't even look up before because of the glory of the sun, now a cloud comes in the way. And, and kind of covers, kind of hides part of the glory. Now, you wouldn't, there as you're fishing, you wouldn't say, well, look, the glory of the sun is gone. No, of course not. It's just being veiled for a little while by the cloud. In the same way, the glory of Christ is being veiled by his flesh. The luster, one of the commentators says, the luster of his glory is only for a time, only for a time, Obscured. So in the same way, Christ emptying himself and coming to earth has veiled him his own fullness from the sight of men. Now you see that veil kind of pulled back a little bit on the mountain transfiguration. The synoptic gospels carry this. Mark 7, we'll read from that. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, kind of the inner three out of the twelve, and led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, he can't help himself, uh, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us, let us make three tents for you and for Moses and one for Elijah. Because he's Peter and he, he didn't know what to say for they were terrified. Isaiah and these three disciples have the same response. The unveiled version of Christ an unveiled vision of Christ will bring you to repentant fear. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's Peter stammering for something to say because he's, he's afraid. They're all afraid. So Christ is not grasped at his equality with God, but he emptied himself and veiled his glory for a little while, for a moment, as a cloud is, will come and veil the glory of the sun. We, we're, we'll sing it. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to well, Jesus our Emmanuel. It's glorious. So what does it mean then? The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's going to come and, and veil himself, but he's going to retain all of his divine attributes so he's fully God still. But what then is the mean? How, how does he empty himself? It says, but he emptied himself. Well, how does he do it? Go to the next clause. By taking the form of a servant. Here you, you have it filled out a little bit more and a little bit more, right? So you ask yourself, so if he's going to empty himself, he's not losing 
any of his divine attributes, the very essence of that make God, that makes God God. He's not losing any of that, but he's, he's pouring himself, he's emptying himself into flesh. He's doing it by taking the form of a servant. If you're going to take this Greek course coming up, you'll notice it's a participle, Joel. Uh, it's a participle. It's a participle of means. It's coming after this main verb. So it's the means by which he is emptying himself is by taking the form of the servant. And this it relieves the, all the difficulties of this previous, this previous part of Christ emptying himself. He didn't empty himself. Again, be very clear. He did not empty himself of any divinity. But he emptied himself in such a way that he takes on the form of a servant. You could think of it in this way. Not so much what did he empty himself of, his divine attributes, but what did he empty himself into? And that is the form of a servant. So go back up to verse 6 here again. Let's tie, try to tie it in a little bit better. Christ has been in the form of God eternally. Eternally has been in the form of God. But now he has taken upon himself the form. Same word being repeated in the Greek. The form of a servant. He has taken upon himself flesh. He was God, although he was in the form of God. He, he was God, eternally past, but now he is man. He has taken upon himself humanity. Two natures, one person. It's the eternal who has come and put on flesh. Not like the, the rulers of this world who are flesh and try to ascribe themselves deity. No, nothing like that. We have the eternal who has come and then put himself, put on himself flesh. And notice how he does it. By taking the form of a servant. Servant, slave, same word. How fitting that he's betrayed by Judas for the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. And he is like a slave in his death to free us from the slavery of sin. He's taken upon himself the form of a servant. Well, then you have to ask, well, servant to whom? Who is he a servant to? Other men? No, you don't really see that. He's not at their beckoning call. He follows. Christ is an absolute slave and servant to God the Father. He did nothing. I can do nothing, John 5. I can do nothing apart from the will of my Father. Complete, honorable, perfect subjection to God the Father. His emotions, his desires, his will, his, his affections are all under the will of God the Father. So when we talk about Christ, 
eternally existing, this being the sovereign plan of God's lowliness, now we see it in the flesh. Everything, everything about his humanity was low. Which, in our comfortable world, this is hard to delight in. That he was a servant, he was a slave to God the Father. He was low in the sense that he had no place. Foxes have holes, but I have no place, he said, to lay my head. He didn't even have money to pay the temple tax, so he sends out Peter. Go fishing, you'll catch some. It'll be in the mouth, bring it in. His own family didn't even recognize him as the Messiah. And every layer of of societal structure was against him, except for the lowest of them, the societal outcast, tax collectors, women of ill repute, fishermen. His authority is questioned. He's given no honor in his hometown, Luke 4. You even see that they want to throw him off a cliff in his own hometown. He's born to an unwed mother, born to an unwed mother in the first century Jewish culture with everything that that would bring with it. But even the place of his birth, even the place of his birth is low. He's born in Bethlehem. It's... It's nothing. It's like, the, it's like the armpit of the Roman Empire. Like, it's nothing. But you, Micah 5, but you, O Bethlehem Ephraim, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, of ancient of days. Everything about our Messiah was low. From the conception to an unwed mother to his death upon the cross, every part of his life is that of a servant, a low servant, following, obeying, desiring to do the will of his heavenly Father. This is the human lowliness of Christ that he has come to live out on earth. The ideal of humanity is a servant or a slave. Thus, when we think about ourselves as humanity, in being in flesh, we have to realize that we too, we too are servants. We too are slaves. Either you're going to be a slave to your passions and your desires... A little slight breeze on the desires and your wind, your sails are filled with lust and greed and anger. And you go quite strongly down this stream towards the waterfall of eternal damnation. But quite strongly you go there because you are a slave to your passions and your desires. It, it will drive you. And perhaps the world will love you for it. And it'll be your master. And not one aspect of your life 
will escape the purview of the fact that you're a slave to it. So maybe it's not passions and emotions, but maybe you're slave to other men and other women constantly seeking the approval of others. This is probably more women. It's probably more men that are slaves to their passions and emotions. But I've, I've even seen... I won't, well, Let me think here. How I can edit this. I've, I've even seen other men, grown men, none of you in here, like 50, men in their 50s, seeking the approval, doing whatever they can do, by the way they dress, how they talk, seeking the approval of other people. It's weak, but he's a slave to it. And he looks to others for affirmation. He looks to others how he should talk. Women and, and how we dressed. Are we doing it to seek the approval of others? Sinful approval sometimes of others. Or is modesty our aim? We are a slave in so many ways and we don't even know it. So should we be a slave to them? Or shall we forsake all things and be a slave to God? What, what a delight to follow our Messiah in this way. That we have the same master as our Messiah? Isn't this a beautiful thing? And, and that's, as a slave, that's the best place to be. To be a slave under a good master. That is the best you could ask for. He will take care of you. You will be fed. You will be clothed. Everything you need will be taken care of because he's a good master. And you are free to do whatever you want. Enter garden narrative. You are free to do whatever you want except sin. You want to work here? Fine, good, do it. Do it to the glory of God. Cut down trees to the glory of God. You want to be a physician? Great, do it to the glory of God. Do whatever you want to do in subjection to his will. This is how, even how Paul understood himself. I am Paul, a servant, a slave to God, a servant to Christ Jesus. So when you think of your identity in Christ, don't lose this part of it. That we have the same master. Our Father in heaven. So let's keep moving here. Born in the likeness of men. It's not redundant. Okay, so you, you don't read um, by taking the form of a servant. Oh, and let's just add this on here. Being born in the likeness of men. No, it's not redundant at all. He's born in the likeness of men. Again, one person, two natures, two wills in Christ. He's living under the sovereign will of his heavenly father in lowliness. And it was done in such a way that he wouldn't even be a, a, a servant or a slave, but he would also take upon himself 
the likeness of men. And this is the, the truest essence of what humanity is. That's what Christ has taken upon himself. It's not like the pagan gods, Zeus, who had come down and put on a cloak of humanity or anything like that. Or it'd be a phantom or like a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Nothing like that. It wasn't incomplete. It wasn't just this manifestation or anything like that. When Christ comes, he is the true humanity. When Christ comes, he is the fullness of humanity in every way like us, just without sin. Which is because we sin so much, and that's much of what we do throughout the day. That's how we view humanity. Reshape how you understand what it means to be true humanity outside of the fallenness because that is what Christ is. He's like a man, like, like all of us. He has a lineage going all of the way back from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Perez. He has a mom and he grows in stature. Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he has a lineage, he's, he has a mom, and he grows in stature, and he's tempted like us. He's out in the wilderness without eating for 40 days. And Satan comes to him and tempts him, just like he will come to you and tempt you in your frailty, when you're tired and susceptible. Oh, just ask for these stones to be turned into bread. Oh, just cast yourself off the temple. Just... Let's cut to it. Bow down and worship me and everything you see, it'll be yours. He's tempted like us. He was thirsty. He lived and he died in pain. He was born under the law and he fulfilled it. And like all of us, as we shall, he died. It was necessary that Christ would come in the flesh. Necessary that Christ would come in the flesh and be born in the likeness of men. It was humanity that had sinned. Why, why did it even come in the flesh? Well, this is why. It was humanity that had sinned. And therefore, it was humanity out of God's justice. It was humanity that must take the punishment for that sin. There is his justice. And then in his goodness, he sends his own son that can live the perfect life, fully God, fully man, and take that punishment. So with our time, let's get to the application here. What, we just have time for two. Uh, what does it mean? Why does this matter that Christ has come in the flesh? Uh, number one, the divine, listen up, the divine expression of humanity is that of a servant, is that of a slave. The divine expression of humanity is that of a servant and slave. You want titles, don't you? 
You want published papers. You want people to call you this and that. We've fallen into that trap. But in reality, we're servants. It's, it's the substance of who we are in Christ. Is that we are servants. As we follow him, that is what we are. That's why in our church, deacons are highly commended. Why? Because they are the pinnacle. They're a wonderful, godly example of what it means to serve and to serve well. And in that way, they show us a lot of what it looks like to be Christ. So just be encouraged. If you're a mom and your kids are sick, as they will be this time of year, and you're up till 5 a.m. with them, and then by 6 you have breakfast getting ready to be made for the other kids who are waking up and no one sees it but your heavenly father who is in heaven. Delight in that. You are living out the truest expression of humanity, of what it means to be human. So, Number one, the divine expression of humanity is that of a slave. Number two, it just makes you adore Christ, does it not? Adore Christ, who is like us in all of our weakness, who has gone through all of the temptations that we have gone to. He enters into his suffering world and takes that suffering then upon himself. The author of Hebrews writes, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you have a Messiah here who was born in the likeness of men to redeem you. But until you reach that glory, he's come. He's come down from eternity to to grab you and pull you up. The very thing that that other rulers long for to be humanity, but then made divine. We aren't going to be made divine, but we will come up then into the presence of God. Christ has come and entered into our suffering. And until you reach glory... You can adore your Christ who is like you in all of these ways. He knows all of your temptations and will carry you through that in his flesh to glory. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we we ask, (laughs) we ask so many times to see your glory and behold it. Uh, And sometimes it is your goodness that veils it from us. We know we would be completely undone, as we see with the disciples, as we see with Isaiah. But God, show us more. We are zealous to see. Even at that, we are zealous to see more of your glory. And God, if our hearts rebel against the idea of being a servant, of being a slave... Humble us. Let us delight that we would be like our Messiah and follow him in complete obedience to you, not wavering with our emotions, our desires, our affections. 
God, constrain us to delight in your Son who has come in the flesh, who has taken the form of a servant. God, may we too have those same hearts that would be delighting in the fact that we are your servant and your slave. God, we ask that you would do with us as you will for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.